Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Conventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome, everyone, and thanks again for downloading another episode of the podcast. This episode is on the Indian Staff College, which our guest today, John Holden, attended. I remember John sharing some of his training and tactics employed and taught at this defence institution, and I believe the listeners will enjoy John's story of his time there. So, John, welcome back, and thank you for sharing this period in your military career. Thanks very much, and uh, thank you for having me back. Um, it's worthwhile, I suppose, saying at the beginning that so this podcast itself precedes the one I gave last time, because you may recall, and I remember listening back to it um where I started that last podcast by saying that I'd returned to the UK in May 2003 straight from India to assume command of 473 Battery. So this period is from May, June 2002 up to me returning back to the UK. So John, what took you to the Indian Staff College? I suppose as usual with me and my military career, it was never really uh, a straight story. 2002? And I was a staff officer in the UK's armoured division, which was based in Germany, Hereford, uh, um, to be precise. I was a targeting or a deep fires officer. So my title for the military types was SO2 targets at one UK armoured div. And I was eligible to attend staff college because five years earlier I'd attended my junior staff training and I passed it with sufficient marks to progress along that that uh, career route but as with all matters in officer training and education and promotion there was a degree of uh, of selection as well you had to pass what was called AJD at, at a certain grade to be considered for promotion but then in addition to that you had to be selected and as part of this you had to submit your preferences and I 
personally was never really inclined to go to the UK's own staff college. I know it's very prestigious and one of the world's best, but it, it didn't really flick my switch. And as I always wanted to go to one of the overseas colleges for a number of reasons, partly because I, I like the adventure, uh, but more importantly, I wanted to study through the eyes of a of a different military. And I happened to put India as my first choice. And then I'm Australia as my second. And I can't for the life of me remember my third. I know it wasn't the USA because I would never have gone to the USA. That was, you know, uh, your future generals would, would always go there. And anyway, in 2002, so I think I would have been about 33 years of age, I was actually stood on the poolside of the Army swimming pool down in Aldershot because I was managing the Army swimming team. I mean, you two remember that I was quite big into army swimming and trying to get the guys into the pool uh, most weeks. And we were preparing for the tri-service swimming championships. Um, swimming has always been in the army, one of those sporting underdogs, underinvested and lacking the support from the generals. But we had uh, a good team. And I'd been the army champion on a number of occasions and had captained the team as well. So as a major, it was my turn to, to manage that team. I was on the pool side and I remember it's clear as day. I got a call from my uh, boss who was back at the headquarters in Germany. And I remember the phone call as if it was yesterday. As in many ways, it that phone call changed my life and shaped my future until this until this day. And it was a, it was a Friday morning. I can't remember the exact date. Uh, and the phone call kind of went like this. John, how do you fancy going to India? Oh, when? Next week. Great. How long for? A year. Uh, what for? Staff college. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll be back in the office on Monday. And so with that, I, handed my, I remember handing my clipboard over uh, to a colleague. I got in my car, drove back to Germany. I reported back to my boss on the Monday. 96 hours later, I'd handed my job over. I'd closed my, my quarter. I had an apartment while I was there. Sold my car, given my dog to a, a close friend to look after, sorted my residential visa out, packed, sorted out all my financial affairs, affairs, um, and I was on a plane to Delhi. From Delhi, I flew down to a city called Coimbatore in South India, and I was met by a driver who knew I was coming. I didn't know he was even going to meet me, who took me to what would become my home for the next year. The drive to the military base, it was a, a cantonment, was a two-hour drive up to what was called the Nilgiris Mountains. And it was about an 8,000 feet climb up in the military uh, cantonment of a town called Wellington, which, as you can imagine by that name, was an old British Army officer retreat near the town of Kunur, uh, which was just down the road from a holiday resort called Utukamund, or more effectively known as Uti. Now, Uti itself is an old British holiday resort, and the base still had some... Uh, that and Wellington and Canoe still had some of the old infrastructure in place. The cottages, for example, in Wellington were the British office uh, were, were the cottages that British officers could use uh, to have some uh, downtime from their time when they were based over there. And there was still an old cemetery of former British military personnel, and that was discreetly tucked away, unkempt, uh, on the hillside. Would you feel the effects of altitude yeah. at that height? Yeah, uh, you do a little bit, most certainly. I used to run quite regularly with uh, my Australian friend. We used to run around the tea plantations 
and yes, you you did, but not as much. And we'll come on to it later on about one of the tours. But yeah, most definitely at eight thousand feet, you you do start to, to feel it, but it, it doesn't really impair you massively. Uh, and and certainly after about two weeks, you're you're fully acclimatised at that altitude. I remember um, as I got to my house, I was met, again. No one told me this. I was met by four house staff, uh, and they literally came with the house. Uh, and in many ways, if I did not agree to continue employing them, they would have they would have lost their job because it was kind of just handed over. That the house I went into was occupied by the previous British uh, occupant, and so these staff just were handed from one to the other. My driver was a guy called Alexander. Uh, my head of house was um, an elderly lady called Rathnan, who effectively became a sort of like a street auntie. She ran everything. She ran the house. She ran the street. And she was, yeah, she was sort of like the uh, the, the maternal head of all the all the house stuff in, in the road. My childminder, remembering I went there as a single guy, was a lady called Susie, who I employed as my cleaner, because, as I said, I had no kids. And then a lady called Papadi, who was my cleaner, actually became my tea lady and my charwater. And it sounds weird, but but it is what it is. I, I you know I paid them out of my own out of my own army salary. So um, and it, and it didn't cost that much, but I paid them probably more than what the the local Indian officers paid their staff and I put a structure in place for overtime and, and stuff like that especially for Alexander when we went on our weekend trips to um, uh, you know places like Bangalore or Mudamalai into the jungle and places like that he would he would be given an allowance so he could come along and you know so he was quite happy to do it because he made quite a lot of money I suppose relatively so I, I ran them and uh, Papadi's job was to meet me when I came back from the college. She met me at the door with a tray, and that this was her job. She met me at the door with a tray, and on that tray had to be a cup of tea and a slice of banana cake that Ratman had made that morning. And then she would stay while I was doing my college work until about five o'clock, and then she would disappear. And that was her job, and it was fantastic. This must have been a bit like End of Empire sort of time, really. Did it, was that sort yes, of absolutely? Give, and, and did that give I mean, you a concern? Yes, and that's what it felt. Li- yeah, a little bit, but but you counted it because you know, I, as an army officer, sort of in the early two thousands, I, I was uncomfortable with it. But I knew the money I paid them. I mean, Rathnan had a like a servant's quarter in the back of the house, and these weren't big houses, but she had a servant's quarter, yeah. and I, I I never asked how many people lived lived in her quarter. But I know, for example, I paid for for their her nephews and her nieces' graduation parties, their birthdays, and for us it was like it was tens of pounds. But for them it was massive. It kept families going, uh, and I know, for example, because I once turned up early, and my my house and my washing machine was being used as a cottage industry. Um, it's just I turned up like three hours early. <laughs> And uh, they were industrially using the washing machine and cooking food for families. So my grocery bill was probably paying to feed other people. So it was it was quid pro quo, really. And, um, you know, everyone, everyone benefited, which is why I didn't have the heart. There was just me. I did not need four staff in the house, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to terminate anyone's employment. Yeah. And if you make them unemployed, obviously it's a massive impact on them. 
Correct, and they weren't, and um, uh, and so you you know they they came across with the house, and so only afterwards do you realise that that day when I turned up, whenever the new Brit turned up, must have been a nerve wracking day for them, because you know there was no formal agreement, um, and if I just turned around and said thanks very much, I don't need you, th- there was no there was nothing. They they would there would be no severance pay. There's nothing. They'd be just out on the on the streets, having lost the ability to to feed the family. So I kept them for a year, and they were absolutely lovely, and they looked after me. And I, I was I was taken ill a few times because obviously of the food and the climate and everything else. You're not you're not used to it, and and they looked after me amazingly. And my house was always tidy. I always had food on the plate, uh, and all I had to do was focus on 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 the studies and and the college. And so that's exactly what it was for. And and beneficial because it was a beautiful place. As I say, it was 8,000 feet. You look down onto this steam railway track that ran up to the, the tourist town of Uti. It was um, nestled in the heart of the tea plantations. Beautiful places to run around. Uh, and I know we'll come on to it later. So I bought myself a Royal Enfield bullet and we would ride around those beautiful mountains on your spare time with the sun setting. Um, it was idyllic. It was amazing. Anyway, so to take that story on, I, I can't remember I can't remember the exact date, but I remember arriving at the house on a Saturday. So and I had my first rude awakening on the Sunday morning when an Indian colonel knocked on the door to introduce himself um as my sort of DS uh, for those, you know, non military, my directing staff who would be my directing staff for the year. And that first introduction didn't go very didn't go down very well because he promptly told me off in quite a stern way for not having the decency <laughs> to inform him of my arrival noting that i only really knew about 96 hours before that i was definitely going anyway he rapidly became introduced to me and got the curt response they probably deserved and i told him off for not having the decency to meet me at the airport and relying on a member of staff who really didn't know what i looked like so that, that shocked him a little bit and that kind of set the tone with him as as a man and my DS uh, for the rest of the year, and um, and then the course started literally the next day. So I had like thirty six hours to acclimatise, and then we were on it. We were on the course uh, the next day, and the the first week was solely for um, what the Indian College would call the friendly foreign nations. And the students, I think, were from about twenty eight nations, if my memory serves me right. There were three students from the UK, two from the USA, and one from Australia, and then many other countries from the Middle East, Africa, and the Far East. And the officer from Uganda is one student who always stuck out. Uh, he's um, he's a major general now, I know that, and I googled him recently, and uh, um, and I believe he is, or he was until recently, a high-ranking general in the United Nations. And so... These officers from other nations, they, because he wasn't the only one, uh, you know, they progressed onto real senior rank. And I know this, this Ugandan major general is really influential over back in his own country. And um, so week one really was all about induction and familiarization with the college itself and with the Indian military. But the Indian military is a really secretive organization. And you can understand why when you understand the politics of the region. And so although we were students on the course, they would never really ever divulge exactly how the the army in the real world was compromised. Um, safe to say it was close to the, the organisational structure that we 
we use throughout the course itself. And so when we talked about a 14 core organization, which is their size, so you can imagine how large that was. And it's very personnel heavy with over sort of 40 divisions. And at the UK, well, we had two regular divisions at that time. So it talks about, you can give the example. And they prided themselves at that time. I think they had one really Western standard division and the rest were, you know, it was more personnel heavy because of because of their main threats, as you can imagine, were, you know, internal borders along with primarily with Pakistan and, and China. I mean, just to put that into context, though, I mean, the height of the Cold War, the British Army, we only had one corps. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. I mean... It is huge. 14 corps. Yeah. And did you have a mixture yeah, of it's, British it's, influence and Soviet influence? Because did the Indian Army have quite a bit of Soviet kit? You, you, have, you have hit it right on the head. Yeah. You, you have hit it on the head. So the the equipment was predominantly... Soviet, so absolutely, they were increasingly buying Western equipment, but it was predominantly, and the majority of sort of like the sort of like the residual cores and the divisions, less for their premier ones, were were Soviet in nature, and so their their tactics had to support the support that equipment, but their culture, their a lot of their doctrine, and we'll come on to some of it, uh, some of their doctrine, they were trying to move towards uh, Western, so they were. And you can see the correlation between, you know, British our military culture uh, and theirs, and that overlap, and where the two the two come together. So they have a, a Western influence, obviously, but their equipment was tactical. So their level of command was very prescriptive, because as, as Soviet as Soviet doctrine requires a prescriptive level of command. So when when the course started proper, uh, the following week, uh, I can't remember exactly how many students there were exactly, but. I think it was about five to six hundred. They were broken down into they were broken down into syndicates, and I was allocated a, a syndicate sponsor, who again he he and I just didn't click at all. So I adopted a effectively a, an Indian. He was a Tamil officer from the infantry, who also is now a major general and is three years away from retirement. And I still keep in touch with him. And again, because they're serving, they can't use. They're very strict. They're not allowed any social media, so it's just it's WhatsApp conversations uh, and stuff like that. But I, I keep in, in fact, it's four or five. I keep in touch with quite a lot because there were some really cracking, cracking guys. My one of my next door neighbours was uh, special forces. Another one of my next door neighbours was uh, para, um, you know, and they had significant operational experience up in the in the border regions, um, certainly up in Jammu Kashmir. Um, and then the course starts. It literally just kicks off and, and away you go. Uh, and I had a, a look over some of the old notes, but the course was broken down into six primary modules and they were military organisations and communication techniques, international relations and strategy, uh, analysis of the tactical problems and process of decision-making, planning and management of combat resources, evaluation of combat effectiveness and study of industrial sectors, Theory and Practice of Contemporary Warfare, India's National Security, Modern Military Challenges and Responses, and Strategic Aspects of Area Studies. And in addition to the course, each student had to write an essay 
as part of their submission to qualify for their master's degree, which was in defence and strategic studies from Madras University. So I have a I have a degree. I have a master's degree from Madras, which is fantastic. Before we go on to what your degree was, John, can you just cover for civilian listeners who might not know, what is the importance of a staff college qualification to a British officer? It enables, it opens it opens doors for further promotion. I think you for a non for non military, without it, because it is a master's level of study, it is a master's level, which is why that you know, it's easy to get a, a master's degree running parallel with it. So it's that level of academic study. And without it, you are, you're, you're capped in terms of your career progression. Uh, and because it demonstrates a level of academic understanding to the art of warfare, I think is a fair way of saying it. The MSc you get is in what's called Defence and Strategic Studies. So that's what the master's degree is. Um, and the dissertation I wrote, uh, in order to qualify it, and it did get some pushback, was um, on women in combat, because uh, the Indian military had women serving, but they were they were kind of like the very old WRAC that we had, uh, and they weren't they weren't transitioning into the combat roles that we had. So I remember that my dissertation was on that, and I, I wrote it in order because it would be marked by the university and by the college, and so I, I wanted. I wanted to be provocative, uh, and I wrote it. I wrote, I, okay, well, I can see you laughing, and you probably know that's that's me. So yeah, I was. I suppose the purpose of a master's degree is to push the boundaries, and I wanted to do that. So that's what I wrote. Yeah, that's what I wrote my dissertation on. Is that still the case then with the uh, Indian forces that women are they now moving into all the other roles, or are they still operating in that way? Um, I don't know if I'm if I can be truthfully honest. I don't know. I would imagine, based on on their culture and and the fact of the you know the size of the military and the size of their population, that they don't need to. Um, yeah. Because a, lo- a lot of their military is, you know, when when one of their young soldiers joins the regiment, it really that family is. You know, their salary might not be brilliant, but the family is is cared for. And if that if the soldier is killed in combat up on, on the border regions or anything like that or is you know then then the family don't have anything to really worry about because it's drawn from what is in many places an agricultural economy rather than the cities I would imagine so within our cantonment there was um, um, a Madras regiment based next door as well obviously so you know they have that locality to to Madras that's a very very rural area around around the city well, you think how long it's taken us to get females the access that they have to all combat yeah. roles now. I mean, it's only this week we had a first female actual parachute regiment badged female past P Company and is now serving yeah. in the parachute regiment. Yes, uh, absolutely. And don't get me wrong, you know, the uh, I'm sure that if and when it does happen, the you know, the uh, um women in who are drawn into the Indian military will be just as just as competent and just as capable, you know. And I, I do recall seeing them in small numbers around but as I say my recollection from that time was they did remind me and, and the roles that they were undertaking were very similar to what we would have had as the WRAC and, and I think if we talk through those those modules because each module lasted about um, six weeks uh, but there are a number that stand out for me that really made that year absolutely you know amazing and worthwhile during the course we underwent two tours uh, two real noticeable tours, and each each of those tours 
lasted for for two weeks so you were away from the college for two weeks so out of a year I was uh, I was away from camp for effectively a month and the first tour was through the industrial heartland of India and it was all done by train and so this was a military sleeper train uh, and a purpose-built military sleeper train so you can imagine that again because of the the requirement and the primary risk which is border conflicts along the majority of their land-based borders with Pakistan and China when they mobilize they need to mobilize their military personnel quickly so they rely on their train network to get and and aircraft as well but train primarily to transport military personnel into the operational theaters so we just whether it was designated for us but we had a we had a one of these trains for for two weeks I've got to say it was by far my favorite time uh, in India basically we got to travel that two weeks on a sleeper train through the heartland and it was called an industrial demonstration tour as the stops were to allow the students to develop their understanding of India's industrial and emerging IT technical uh, capacity that could support defence. So we visited places like Hyderabad, Sikandrabad and Pune. They're the, the, the three sort of cities that really stand out for me. We often travelled through the night to get to our destination and would wake up in the morning where we would commence, you know, our specific tour. And on the occasions when we would pull into an area for more than one night, which was quite often, we would be, um, certainly if if you were able, whether you were an Indian officer, I believe, or a foreign national officer, you would be allowed to stay in, in hotels, which made it feel more like an RAF tour. And I would spend hours in the... I would spend hours in the evening uh, when we were travelling from destination to destination, sat in the doorway of the train, my feet sticking out of the door with a beer in hand, watching rural India just pass me by, chatting endlessly with my Australian colleague. (laughs) I lost so much weight during this part of the tour because um, we were fed from... Indian railway stations and um, it is traditional Indian food and the sp- spice level for me was just off the charts nothing wrong with the food it was it was great but it was just far too spicy for me to the point that I simply couldn't eat it at all and I, I'm not joking it was so bad that my colleagues on the train in my carriage would literally because apart from laughing as I was projectile sweating all over them they would swap me my food for their pots of yogurt which I would then supplement with food from the sort of railway uh, cafes on on the whenever we pulled into a station I would rush out and then pick up things like Mars bars and the like and then eat 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 those and then I would catch up with the proper food whenever we stopped over at the hotels as our allowance from the embassy would actually permit us to do that and stay in, in good quality hotels like the Taj chain or something or the Oberoi I think it was called with the type that we would stay in and I think the point to draw from from this tour was that India had and has a significant industrial base. Uh, I mean, it is large. And so we saw all varieties of factories and industrial capacity. And I, I recall visiting one factory, for example, and it was designated in building cars and, and lorries, primarily trucks for, for defence, but it also had um, a, a line running for cars. And at that time, they were building the new City Rover. And they were extremely proud that, you know, they were they were building the car for us. Now, that car already existed in India. It was called the, the Tata Indica. And it was just being rebadged and, and 
shipped over to UK to be sold as a as a rover, and they were really proud of that because obviously, uh, if you look on the reviews, it doesn't get a good review in England, but uh, it just showed you that they had capacity and that uh, we hadn't anymore, really, to a certain extent. Now, if memory serves me right, I do re- remember that we went to visit um, a tank, and again, it was shrouded around secrecy. I think it was the Argent tank, uh, which was their homemade tank that had been sort of designed in the 90s and then rolled out in the early 2000s, and it was complementing sort of their, um, you know, their later suites of uh, yeah, T-class tanks that they, they had and supplementing the majority of sort of the T-72s. The interesting part for me was how the Indians managed to show foreign students the best of India while while managing to balance that against that default position of secrecy, verging on mistrust to a certain extent. Uh, and it was based on the fact that, as I say, the entire course was uh, run without ever divulging the, the entire structure. Because I know if you went to the UK course or, or US or Australia, you would dive into our real structures because that's how you would because whatever you would plan and whatever you would exercise would be based on real world scenarios and real world organizations uh, but not in india what was that distrust where did that come from I, hard to say i think if you want my honest opinion i think i think it's regional i think you know I, i've lived in the middle east as well uh, and i think it is a default setting in that part of the world. I think in the West where, you know, they probably look at us and would ask the same question why we why we make it so easy to divulge our organisational structure the way we do. And again, it goes back to that opening question is why I wanted to go to Engine Staff College. I wanted to see military planning and military military thought through a different lens you know, and they are very secretive. If you go online, you can't you can't really download uh, an orbat of of what the Indian Army looks like. They hold that really close to their chest. And as I say, it's not just them. I would imagine it's the same in Pakistan. It was the same in the Middle Eastern countries where I lived as a, as a civilian. When you look at the relationships they've got in those Correct. borders and, and the uh, the tensions on those, those borders, they've, they've, that's probably one of the reasons they probably yeah. do keep it quite close to their chest. Absolutely. And and that's a, that's absolutely. But I think it bores deeper than that. And I think it's it's a cultural norm. Uh, you know, it's why would I think their position is why would you want to uh, make it easy for your organisational structure to be known by someone who is going to one day become your opponent uh, on on the battlefield? And so they they don't. And uh, as much as we were, as I say, officially labelled as friendly foreign nations, there's always suspicion. Going back to the tour, though, every time we stopped, uh, the tour would include. An event at a military base, and the foreign students in particular would be uh, would be brought out, especially the the westerns, the US, the Brits, and, and the Australian. Uh, and it was almost like a, a, a display, and it was a great opportunity, however, to see that rich cultural history of the Indian military and how you can still see those threads of Britain's influence running through that culture, as well as how theirs run through ours. You know, their uniforms, the the the, the focus on the bands and the structure and the way a the way an event is is managed and it's delivered. That the similarities are just, it, it, yeah, it could be the same. And we've got that overhang from Empire in India as well, with things like uh, the, the slang we still use, mm-hmm. sangers, uh, Dolby for washing, yep. all that sangers, thing. Dolby, bed, yep. isn't it? Absolutely. Totally, it it really is, um, and it and it crosses over both ways. Um, yeah, it it really does. 
The next one is after that tour, and I think this was straight after the Christmas leave, we undertook a two-week tour of India's operational areas. Uh, so this was putting you right into the operational zone. Now, for me, you, you had two choices. Um, there was always, you could go one way to Jammu Kashmir, and you could go the other way to the Indochina border. Now, the year we went, I think the Jammu Kashmir, because they, they split you into two, the, the group that went to Jammu Kashmir, probably that tour was suppressed because the, uh, India and uh, Pakistan had had a disagreement earlier on in 2002 that had caused the Staff College to delay its start. And so for risk purposes, that you wouldn't have gone as far forward to the front line as you probably otherwise would in, in previous years. Whereas for us who went up to the Indochina border, uh, we were right up right on the on the border line now we flew, we flew to the region by antonov so a double decker antonov and then we broke down into smaller groups where we flew to our own mountainous destinations by hip and i'll always remember that uh flight because i've never flown at such an altitude in a helicopter having to suck from an oxygen mask whenever we felt short of breath so cole when you're talking about did you feel the this two weeks, absolutely, altitude sickness <laughs> crept in massively. And I remember sort of being being quite lightheaded and quite feeling quite faint in the helicopter and having to draw on that. Wasn't expecting it. You know, there was no training or prep. It was just feel faint, suck on that, and away, away you go. I don't know the exact altitude we flew at, but I've, I know I've never been that high before. We went to various sort of formation HQs and their operation ops rooms, and, and they had the most intricate 3d models that had been developed over decades of of that operational area and uh, they took great pride in that and they were so colorful and and it was really strange because i never really realized it struck a chord to me when we did our first classroom exercise and uh that we undertook on the course and that classroom exercise ran for a, a couple of days and it was almost like the first day was always spent preparing the ops room and making that model very colourful. And I thought, well, this is really strange. You know, why why would we be doing that and and worrying, um, you know, to that level of attention to detail and all the, the trimmings that go with that model? And it, and it clearly fixed the Indian officers. And it only really, I only understood it truly once I got to the operational theatre and you walked into the, you know, the brigade or the divisional headquarters and you went into their ops room and that model was absolutely, it was a work of art. But it wasn't just a model, it was everything around it. If you imagine the sort of the most colourful saris and everything in India, that colour and, and, and the, the artistry that goes with that culture, it, it manifests itself into the ops room as well. Um, and again, that that was a cultural nuance that wouldn't would run throughout the the entire course, and it continued into the operational settings. Which you you know you you've both been in headquarters on operational tours, and you go into ours, and there's no trim, there's no frill, but there it was. But these were static headquarters again, based on their their operational purpose, which was border defence, and so very static in in nature. Do you reckon that as well? Because they're not relying on technology as much. They're still doing it the old-fashioned yeah, way, if you like. Yes, a- absolutely. Um, now, remember, that was that was 20 years ago. But you're right, absolutely. It was, it was the old-fashioned way. But you could imagine sitting in the ops room and getting a, a brief about, you know, a threat coming from an avenue of approach. And you could see it because these models were so large 
you could almost walk it. I mean, you literally could stand over it with your your pointer, and you could you could micro navigate almost the route that you were going to do. It was it was detailed, and and I do remember actually being on. They paid civilians at the college, so when you would do your exercises and your uh, each whether it was offensive phase, defensive, mountain phase, and you went into the classroom first or the lecture hall, and they had the big sand model table in the middle, which was almost like you know forty five foot by twenty feet. You would you would leave that lecture room one night, you would come in the next day, and there was this sand model that was crafted to perfection and it'd been done by a couple of these civilians that turn the model into a work of art so it's a skill that they have that you know we we've lost because as you say we rely on on technology and so these operational bases they are covering contested borders you know these are operational active active areas and in this case where i was i think at significant altitude i think i was somewhere around i was trying to dig out a photograph we were stood at one of those you know, signpost which gave gave you the altitude, and I think it was somewhere between fourteen and sixteen thousand feet where my operational base was at that time. And I recall the areas I visited were Tawang and Tezpur up on the sort of Bhutan um, area. And it was, I mean, we visited more because we were there for two weeks, but they were the main ones uh, as the military infrastructure was everywhere. And what was impressive, really, was the resources it took to maintain that significant military presence at, at such altitudes. You know, it's quite clear that the Indian Army has its duty to defend those contested borders. So this duty sits at the very heart of their modern military culture. As I say, it's, it's why they've got so many trains, it's, you know, to, to get them there. That's That's their primary purpose. And so... Kevin, we were going back to the quantity of military, although they have, you know, a number of divisions that are, I would say, are of Western standard. The majority aren't. They don't need to be. It's, it's quantity versus quality. Um, what was clear, I mean, I remember um, visiting the hut on the border crossing point itself where the two sides would would meet. And I do believe met after the, the 1962 conflict that India had with China. Because I remember that being talked to me about about meeting at, at the hut. And what was clear was that the Indian Army is most definitely geared up for its defence of its borders. I think, you know, it, it learnt a lot of lessons from 62. It was very successful in 72. And it's geared up and it can respond and mobilise very quickly. And that's what those numbers are. They're structured under that command in order to, to deliver mass at pace to defend the border and they're designed defensive operations, you know, to, to do just that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Uh, interestingly, our staff college in 2002 was, as I said, it was delayed because of that localised conflict. And I think I think if I remember, it was officially classed as a standoff between India and Pakistan. Uh, and their policy, which is interesting, was to divide, div- divert all their resources to the conflict rather than the UK, whose training institutions would continue through a conflict. You know, when we went to Iraq or Afghanistan... Uh, and before that, you know, all your institutions, training institutions would continue. But no, their staff college stopped and therefore the start point was delayed. And one of the one of the issues with that staff college delaying was because I think it was the, the course originally was for like a year and a half, but it was compressed into a year. And the commandant had to demonstrate that in order to get the course back to what it was originally, this is what we were told. They had to put the students under almost undue pressure to make it almost unbearable so they could say, see, we can't do this in a year. We have to go back to to where we were. And so there was very little downtime for for the foreign students to enjoy them, you know, the the less sort of college based activities. And we'd heard from previous students who said, oh, you'll be given time off to go and explore. And so we had none of that. I mean, we were very lucky to grab a weekend here, there, or, you know, Bangalore was a seven hour drive and Mudamalai jungle was over the other side of the Nilgiris mountains. And so you could do that. But to go and get on a plane and go up to uh, the Taj Mahal up in Delhi, no, unless you went in the Christmas break, there was no opportunity to do that at all. It's interesting, John, you mentioned about the mountain fighting because I don't know if you saw it a few months ago, there was a massive, it actually was a punch-up, a physical punch-up on the border with Chinese troops and a number of Indian troops and Chinese troops were killed. Mm. Yes. And, then, and yeah. then um I remember reading an article a couple of years ago about the ability of the Indian Army's artillery to fight at altitude. The experts yeah. in that as well, and also the sheer number of yeah. casualties they get with altitude sickness, pulmonary edemas, and everything. It's a, yes. it's a danger. It's a dangerous yeah. environment. Yeah, it, it is. And I was talking to a couple of their officers because I think when I was asking, they, you know, the soldiers were up there for that. They, they almost, I think it was a twelve-month tour. And you're right; these guys are up there for a long period of time, and and they're not. The the accommodation for the um, for the soldiers was not salubrious. We I remember going into some of their uh, accommodation, whether that was the QRF accommodation, but you know these were they didn't have their own dedicated beds. They were just sort of sleeping areas, and they would just have sort of like sections and platoons just all thrown into a room, and they were they were ready to go. So they were they were at a heightened state of operational readiness at all times. And so, as I say, you know, maintaining that level of uh, capability and readiness takes a massive toll on their military, but it's it's what they're designed for because that's their primary that's their primary purpose. So that really leads me on to, I think what for me was one of the best modules, which were, and you've just mentioned it, um, Cole was the the mountain warfare module, um, in terms of the academic understanding. So I, as I said, the Indian Army operates at altitude and 
and their own territory, you know, within their own territory. So it was no surprise that um, it was one of the main modules uh, of the course. And what was fascinating was that they still taught mule logistics in detail. Um, you know, we had, I think I spent about a week practicing the planning cycle of, of, of mule logistics. And they, the basis of their teaching went back to an old British doctrinal publication from the 1930s. We weren't allowed to keep them. Um, so we couldn't keep any of the dot yard to hand them all back. Uh, and I believe the, pl- so, but the planning assumptions were the same. And I always remember, I'll never forget, the, the planning was based on two different types of mules. One was mule GD, mule general duty. <laughs> and that was a domestic mule. I, I, I kid you not, it was a, it was a domestic mule capable of carrying a load of up to 75 kilos. And then there was a mule artillery which I believe, again, my memory serves me right, was an Austrian bread mule capable of carrying up to 150 kilogram. And the planning was based on um, on military-owned mules, but it was quite clear that, again, like most militaries, they could also contract that capability out to private providers who would use weaker, less cared-for, you know, um, mules, domestic mules, to navigate um, the resources to the more hostile and inaccessible locations. And again, based on recollection, it was a military section, I think, was 14 mules, two of which were set aside for fuel and supplies uh, and, and reserves. And the planning was exactly the same as as you would do, say, in the RLC, where that you would do for vehicles, but just the planning timelines and, and the circular routes where they would go from one uh, exchange point to another uh, would be would be a lot slower and a lot shorter, and then you would just have these circular routes where mules would hang on. But yeah, we spent a, an entire week dedicated to that and planning those within the mountainous warfare, and, and it was absolutely amazing that they still plan it. I never saw any. I never saw any when we went up to the mountainous region, but um, they they still just like we did when we you know when the three of us were serving in the battery, we still did Morse code, I suppose, and I don't yeah. know if the guys still do it now in twenty twenty three, but we were doing Morse code in nineteen ninety five, and in early two thousands, the Indian military were still doing uh, yeah mule logistics. I'm sure the Americans experimented with mules in Afghanistan at a very small scale, but I'm pretty sure they did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yes. I mean, I mean, the mountainous area, the mule is your four before, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. You know, uh, it's going to yeah. go everywhere where you want it to go. It's not constrained by roads or paths in the same way that vehicles are. So actually, it makes complete sense. Uh, it, it does. Uh, and, and again, it's it's interesting, isn't it, that they, they designated two different types of mule, one for general duty and one for artillery, recognising that the fact that, you know, artillery, just as we just as we would in a, in, a, in a heavy conflict you have dedicated artillery logistic lines in addition to your normal normal supplies the other thing i remember when when we planned the uh offensive operation it was offensive we we planned an arm in the mountainous module and it was you know we were trying to plan uh advance to contact and it was how we went about my clearance uh you know and i was applying again my Western doctrine of trying to, you know, to clear the pass, identify and clear the, clear the routes through technology and weaponry, and and um, where then is was, and this comes back to the size of their military was putting the mine blast resistant boots on entire regiments with the, 
of soldiers and, and advancing. And I, I, I couldn't get my head around it. The soldier is a scarce resource and, and is a human. And so we will treat them as such. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that what the Indians, the military were doing differently because if they didn't have the... If they didn't have the technology to do what we did, they didn't have the systems to do what we did, they would still have to advance through the minefield. And so they found the solution by using, you know, well, we've got that regiment there. We'll we'll put the mine-blast-resistant re- uh, boots on, uh, and, and away they go. And then we'll just send the second <laughs> regiment behind. I mean, what and, do those boots look like? I, I don't know. I'm sure if you Google it, you could find well, blast-resistant boots. I think I'll have to, because, I mean, that just sounds... Absolutely mad, doesn't it? It's not something that we would do, is it? And and I suppose that, and I'll come on to it, it, it kind of led me, because there were times when when I could not get my head around alternate ways of military thinking. And again, it's why I wanted to go to a non-NATO staff college in the first place, because I needed, I wanted for my own military development to understand how other militaries think, because if you constrain yourself to the belief that there is only one way to fight a war, then you are deluded. Uh, And if your opponent has tools up their sleeves that you wouldn't even consider uh, and that you won't think that they would use, you are putting yourself at a disadvantage. And so, again, that's why I went to that college in the first place. And I suppose that that leads me on then to that other aspect, of course, I'll always remember was the final classroom-based exercise. And I remember it because it highlights the difference between our two doctrines and uh, and why I wanted to go. So I was made the uh, BMRA for those, you know, outside the military. That was the brigade major of the Royal Artillery at divisional divisional headquarter level. So I was the sort of the, the, the leading staff officer within the artillery side of that divisional headquarters. And I had to plan the deployment of the artillery within a, a defensive core level operation and uh, the Indian doctrine at that time was based on nodal defence, very static uh, defence and so our division had been allocated a nodal point which effectively was a large town uh, to defend and I as the BMRA was trying to apply that western NATO manoeuvrist approach to defence and keeping the artillery in a position where it could be manoeuvred, it could continue to be manoeuvred for its own safety and to get to the best position so you could always, you know, apply force when and where it was needed. And um, But the doctrine there was to basically encircle all the assets effectively into a redoubt uh, and surround it with mines and fight until there was nothing left. Uh, and I re- recall having heated exchanges with fellow students who are, who in the end kind of, you know, because I, I suppose I spoke with passion, who allowed me to apply our doctrine to that scenario, but informed me that in the process, I would be the one who would have to stand in front of the, uh, the DS uh, and, and explain my thinking uh, when it came to it. And I remember proudly standing in front of three generals and I gave my artillery plan only to be told it wouldn't work uh, and that I'd failed to understand that they had more than enough artillery in reserve <laughs> so its loss really wasn't a problem and and that for me was at the was the core reason why it was always beneficial to keep alliances with others outside of NATO because ours isn't the only way of doing things um, and you have to have an open mind to tackle the problems in a manner that is different to what you know we would normally expect to do because 
if that's what they're prepared to do, you know, we, we don't we don't care losing, you know, that regiment's worth of artillery because we've got another hundred of them in in the back. So just crack on. Uh, and it was like, no, 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 we we wouldn't do that because every asset, whether it's a human asset or a material asset, is precious. Someone has delivered it to where it is. You know, if you haven't got that one, then you might not have another one. And so we use our resources very carefully because we treat them as a scarce scarce resource but over there it was it was very different if it was plentiful then you could you could use it in a different way and that came very and i suppose it goes back to what you said cole it's very much based on soviet doctrine and you see that lack of uh, care uh, in ukraine it is what it was towards the, the, the russians towards their soldiers mm. who are you know the the sacrifice them to, to try and break the siege round mm. back moot i think it's called where they're doing human wave style attacks, just trying to wear down the enemy by sheer weight of numbers, something yeah. we would never even consider, you know. No, we would use weaponry. We would we would do everything and we we would spend inordinate amount of sums to to use doctrine and equipment to achieve that effect rather than uh, personnel. And yeah, a lot a lot more different. The manoeuvrist theory it works for us because our doctrine is designed to support it. Our equipment is designed to support it. But and when you bring those two together, and and uh, Kev, I mean, you remember when we were when we were in the Balkans in in the nineties, and for the first time we were we were mixing with militaries that I'd never mixed with before. And you know, I remember going up to that um, you know Soviet equipment for the first time, and it was it was an eye opening experience. Because um, all of a sudden we were seeing things that we'd never seen, and we only heard read about in textbooks and and stuff like that, and seen in slideshows when we were doing our armoured fighting vehicle recognition courses and stuff like that. And um, but you're right, you're right, Cole. I mean, don't get me wrong. I absolutely love my time. I love my year in India. Um, as I said earlier on, we didn't get much time to explore outside uh, of those official tours, as as I said, that course had been compressed due to that earlier dispute. And I recall managing a few weekends away to Bangalore, as I said, and, and one weekend to a jungle retreat. I bought myself a Royal Enfield bullet. You couldn't not buy a Royal Enfield bullet when you're out in India. And I loved riding it through the mountain roads, through those tea plantations on, on your evenings when you'd finish your studies. Most of the Western students bought one also. We, we literally bought them en masse. And we used to <laughs> we used to ride into college in arrow formation with the US Marine Corps who bought the biggest Royal Enfield bullet as you can imagine he bought the 500cc military you know uh, Matt Green version spearheading the group and another another one of my um, another one of my experiences was and this was a real military treat I was blessed to having um, the fortune of listening to a speech by Field Marshal Manukshaw who um he gave a really harsh lecture to the students uh, one 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 evening about who was to blame for sort of you know India where it was in in its development status and and a lot of things so you had these evening lectures about once or twice a week and you would get academics in and you would get military people in and you would get business people in and and there were there were sometimes it was you know considering we were friendly foreign nations there were times when when he didn't feel friendly let's say and um, there was a lot, and it goes back to days of empire. A lot was blamed on on us, uh, on the Brits. But Manukshaw turned it around, and he blamed it on themselves. And 
and their failure to learn and to apply change. And I recall that lecture didn't go down well with the domestic audience. I found it enlightening for a man of a man of his age and for whom India owed so much. He spearheaded their their victory in seventy two against Pakistan. He he was absolutely brilliant. Um, but going back to my Enfield bullet, I I brought that bike. I brought that bike back to the UK, and I I rode it for a while. And but I just got I used to get harassed by men who are now my age, I suppose, and they would often stop me and say, "Well, oh, an Enfield bullet, and can I listen to the exhaust?" And because the Enfield was a three fifty single. A 350cc four-cylinder single stroke, and it sounded beautiful. And so after getting stopped, I sold it to a member of the battery. But a lot of the, people don't realise, though, that the Enfield machinery, all the factory, yeah. was sold to India, yeah. exported from the UK to India. Correct. And you're just thinking, why did we do that? Such a, you know, everyone wants one now. Correct. I know you can actually buy them now. In the, they they now export them to the UK. And I mean, I bought mine in India in two thousand and two for the equivalent of mm. uh, about seven hundred and fifty quid. Uh, and I bought about a year's worth of supplies as well. So when I sold it on to the guy in the battery, he had uh, brake liners, brake brake everything. You know, everything, spare seats, spare exhaust, the, the works, uh, and yeah. The Indians were good hosts, and I, and I, you know, as I say, I've still got some really good friends who I keep in, I keep in touch with uh, on WhatsApp and via LinkedIn and stuff like that. They, they tend not to do social media, certainly if they're serving, as I said. And um, I remember being invited round to uh, the Commandant's house one evening for supper, uh, and again he he regaled how we, the British, once owned this place as as the site, and he reminded me that you know it been the military retreat for the British. And you can't, it had a golf course, it was up in the mountains, it was idyllic. And the houses I lived, the students lived in, they, they weren't there. But where the DS and the Commandant, they were the old British. And then there were some cottages where, you know, effectively holiday cottages where the military guys would come for for a, a, a weekend or a week or whatever. They hosted it in a way that would be familiar to the British. So when, when we went round to the, the Commandant's house, it was as you would do if you went round to your, you know, your OC's house or the CO's house for a dinner night. But um, there, w- there was kind of a subtle difference that, again, no one had prepared me or, or the other guests for. And um, the main event was the, you know, you would hors d'oeuvres, so the... The, the barges and all those Indian snacks that you get over here, that's that's what they serve. And, and they just kept coming because we just kept eating them. And as long as we kept eating them, they, they just kept coming. And the conversation was, was rich and we were talking about lots of things. But by the time you sat down for the meal, that effectively signified the beginning of the end of, of the evening. So that the main part of the evening was the hors d'oeuvres, the standing and the drinking and, and, and eating the bar, uh, the, you know, the the snacks so to speak by the time you'd finished your dessert you were required to, to stand up and leave so the dessert was the end when you put your dessert spoon down it was i think the expectation was you you go but no one told us that so it was kind of a few social faux pas until a couple of my sort of indian colleagues told me because you know we'd have the dessert and we would sit there by that time slightly worse for wear and, and trying to hold, you know, enlightening conversation with, with the hosts. And they were looking at you thinking, why aren't you going? You should be leaving now. And so you just, again, it was that, it was that c- cultural clash that no one, no one warned you about. And uh, it's one of those lessons that when I went and left the military and 
worked in the Middle East for a while, one of the things I told told myself was, you know, you need to learn the culture really quickly. Otherwise, you can you'll end up making a mistake. And it's it was a big lesson, actually. And so the lesson I draw is always ask someone who's been before. There, there were challenges, however, and, you know, and I'd, I'd be lying if I said there weren't. Not not all the local, not all the sort of local officers liked our presence. Trump, some some of them truly did. And you mentioned it beginning, Cole, about Empire. Some truly carried legacy issues of our joint past. And they would often refer to us in the context of your erstwhile empire. And that, that phrase used to grate with me. And I do rem- recall a particularly tense part of a module. It was one of those evening lessons, and then it ran through the day when the Indian, the Indian Staff College used a scenario, which was based on a real-world example of the Australians defending their borders against illegal uh, immigration, and they did it in a way that you know really caused or almost a, a political incident with the serving, the Australian serving officer there, uh, and it didn't need to be done that way. But they did it on the last. And many of the evening lectures would challenge the West in a way that required us to go in pre- preparing for a, a counter challenge to go back. And so it, if we went, if we knew what the purpose of the presentation was, or we knew what the evening presentation was, um, we would probably have a chat with ourselves and, and then we would go ready for ready for combat. And we would we would counter any position that they'd, you know, they had made any statement that they had made and we would throw back equally challenging questions to them and and sometimes it would you would come out sort of having having you know with your adrenaline pumping because that they really did push the boundaries and again it almost it's like do you really want us to be here or 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 not Uh, and i think in some ways that's why the field marshal manicure presentation was so enlightening as we came out from that and we were sort of like enthusiastic and i remember going up to some of my indian colleagues going wow wasn't that amazing (laughs) and they were like no we've seen it all before that sort of attitude that you're discussing john do you reckon part of that is because they're not a new country india but end of empire in India was, you know, late 1940s. Do you think part of that is because they want to be seen to be a country yeah, that's please. made it after the empire left? And, and there's maybe a bit of, not not inferiority complex, but you know what I'm getting at. They, they want to be able to prove themselves that they're a country standing on their own two feet and just as capable and, and as good as Britain. Yes, ab- absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And, and more than that, that they are mm. on the ascendancy and we are not um for those that you know for those that are probably less favorable to us it's almost like you know you you are you're not in the ascendancy and we are we are large we we have the capacity that you no longer have and um and you're no longer calling the shots and to a certain extent there's a truth there's a truth there isn't there we are we are a small nation we you know we our military in terms of its size and its capacity has has declined but um we you know we are still a multi-spectrum military and and theirs is for their size they as i say they are focused primarily on their primary issue at hand which is domestic domestic within a, a, a what we would call you know in almost internal security it's border um it's border defense against two you know pretty potent uh, militaries who they have had recent uh, encounters with. You know, you recur to uh, recall the recent one with China that didn't escalate, thank heavens. You know, the last real major conflict with uh, Pakistan was 72. That was the major one. But they have 
as I say, they've you know they've had in, incursions and and conflict where they do loose off quite a lot of rounds, and then China that made the major one was sixty two. Um, so yeah, the, the, there's a different purpose, and so uh, but I think I think you're absolutely right. It's one of those it's one of those things of and I, I get it. You know, you've you've got you've got a representative from a nation that wants occupied you and we no longer occupy them uh, and they are there to prove that they are independent and they are as i say that's one of the the benefits of that two-week industrial demonstration tour was to see their industrial mass and and they were going to show it us Uh, you know they wanted us to go back and and talk about you know that their capacity to produce at pace and at scale Mm. because we can't do that we don't have that capacity anymore and they certainly do but I did. I did say that at the beginning. I had that phone call on that poolside back in May two thousand and two changed my life. My time in India created a friendship, in particular, with an Australian artillery officer who helped. Who then went on to help me secure my first job outside the army when I moved to uh, the Middle East, Abu Dhabi, in twenty thirteen. And that's where, that's where I I met my wife, with whom I've now got four children. So, had I not taken that call or gone to India, I think my life would have been very different today. <laughs> so, uh, I think, you know, I love my time in India, not only because it opened my eyes militarily to those other ways of fighting, some of those things that we discussed, but, you know, for the friendships made and and those life experiences with, with Indian officers and, and the other officers from the friendly foreign countries as well. And I think that's one of the benefits of defence diplomacy, really. We, we you know, we get to meet people from different cultures and different militaries, and we've all done it. I know in your military careers, you've you've met and served with people from you know many countries, and I think we're better for it. Well, John, thanks for that. I, I was really, really that was really good. I mean, we spoke about this before. I, I felt yeah. I felt it was a it was so unusual because obviously I don't know anyone else who had been to one of the Indian Staff College or somewhere like that, and that leads us nicely onto there's Ireland dits, and for and for this episode, we're only going to concentrate on books. Uh-huh. So, John, what book did you choose for this episode? I chose the book that I'm reading at the moment, actually, and uh, I'm reading The Operators, so Inside 14 in, uh, Intelligence. Oh, yeah, I've seen that one. It's um, it's a small book, but it, it's quite intriguing. Yeah, and the, uh, the reason why I read it is it's I think it's my one, my one regret from my time in the military. It was when I, before I joined 473, I served in 47 Regiment down in Thorny Island, and I was a, a trip. That's and we. If you remember my previous podcast, it's how I met four seven three, because ten battery in four seven regiment was assigned to five regiment for the DRB tour to Northern Ireland. And before that tour, I was a typical young officer who just really wanted it. And we'd had the presentation from fourteen, and they were coming around doing the recruitment. And I, I, I wanted to try out for it. I had my head, yeah, I was interested in, I was all loved up at the time, and so I never went for it, and it was the one regret, because by the time I think I realised that actually I should have gone and done it, it was too late. Enough picked James Holland's Burma 44, the battle that turned Britain's war on the east, and when you look at India's contribution to the Second World War, there were 3.5 million Indian troops, 87,000 were killed, 34,000 wounded, 67,000 taken POW, and in the Far East, they were treated terribly by the Japanese. 18 Indian Army soldiers went yeah. to Victoria Cross. So a really proud uh, tradition in the Second World War. 
and Field Marshal Ochlek stated that Britain couldn't have come through both wars if it hadn't been for the Indian Army. They, yeah. they made an absolutely massive contribution. This book by James Holland focuses on the Battle of the Admin Box in the Arakan in February 1944, and it was the 7th Indian Division that took part. And this is a very well-renowned division that fought well throughout uh, the Second World War. At this time then, the better training and leadership under Slim was beginning to pay off, and he made a focus on no retreat, because previously, a lot of the times, the army, when they were faced with Japanese onslaught, would would, uh, retreat. They were also getting in better kit, and they had trained so well that there was less fear of them being cut off. And actually, that was one of the tricks of the trade that they were going to do at this battle, was allow themselves to be cut off. But because they had brought Spitfires in, we had air superiority, and they were able to do lots of resupply by air, it meant that being cut off wasn't the f- didn't engender the fear that it used to. And it was also at this time that we were realising the Japanese were not the masters of the jungle that they, everybody thought. And uh, they were really a locust army. They had very poor logistics. They tend to live off the land. Uh, this meant that they could move quickly, but also meant that they could become overstretched very quickly too. And there's great examples in the books about how they were very poor tactically. There's a, a chapter in it where it describes a company attack along a dry riverbed, but they did the same thing three times on the roll within hours of each other, and the, and the riverbed was just full of dead Japanese soldiers. So tactically, they were very limited in their ability to think and react to situations. When they had any doubt, it was Banzai. So after 15 days, they were starving and out of supplies and ammunition, and it was a decisive victory demonstrating how the Japanese could be defeated and set the conditions for future victories at Imphal and Kohima later on that year. So it's a really good book, re- recommended. Oh, I'm going to read that. Yeah, I think, I think we spoke about this before. I think there was a, a myth around the Japanese forces for a while. Yeah. And it had to be, I know, and I've, I've mentioned this before, that the Chinbits, although tactically they may not achieve the strategic outcomes they wanted, but it proved that we... We took the fight to the Japanese, we went into their territory and we destroyed that myth. So, you know, mm. there was other other successes during the Second World War against the Japanese forces. See, Alpha, and the Japanese Alpha, the Chindits are actually very similar to the Japanese in that they were operating deep in the jungle, stretched lines of communication. <laughs> and you look at the toll they took for sickness and death, non-combat yeah. casualties, they paid a hell of a yeah. price for what they did. Absolutely, and, and Merrill's Marauders are exactly the same, but I think it was to change the yeah. the mindset of the 14th Army, as it was then, the Forgotten Army, into taking the fight to the Japanese. Like you say, stop the falling back, stop this in, impression of an invincible wave of Japanese, you know, these brilliant jungle fighters. When you were on the course, was there any mention of the Indian Army during World War Two and what they achieved? No, do you know what? That's as you were saying it. That was really strange. It's it. It's not something that I do recall. Don't get me wrong. They they are proud of their their honours and their battle honours. But the ones that I remember being discussed were the ones linked to those that were mm. you know given and awarded post independence. It really wasn't there. There is almost a, I think a shedding of the past. So there was one. There was one time when me and my, uh, some of the sort of Western colleagues, friends of mine, that we we took our bikes and we we rode into Chennai. We had a, a weekend off in Chennai. I regret it because it was one hell of a journey on a on a motorbike. 
Uh, but we went to China, and when we got there, there were there were antique shops. They were selling sort of stuff from Days of Empire, and you could basically buy it for it was worthless. Whereas the sort of local Indian sort of artifacts were really wealthy. So it's almost as if there was a degree of trying to to shed the past. But again, it's quite strange, isn't it? But because you're right. I mean, they sacrificed so much, they gave so much, and they they were and remain immensely brave soldiers, as you would imagine. They are they are ones that you would want by your side. There's 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 nothing lacking in them. They have the courage, and and as you you know that toll of VC speaks for itself. And they haven't they haven't changed. You know, I remember listening to the stories that some of my neighbours would recount uh, in in their sort of operational deployments they are exactly what what you would want my book is uh again going back over the last couple of episodes the, the cold war sort of theme so mine's called the cold war a very short introduction by robert mccone it's looking at the legacy of the cold war and its impact on international relations during the cold war and today it shows that the cold war was not just the soviet and u.s sort of struggle much wider, obviously it was global with proxy wars. It briefly covers the move of decolonization as we move past the Second World War and empires shrunk and revolutionary groups flowed onto the scene in Vietnam and places like that. And that had a massive impact on us. Obviously the proxy wars in Korea, Vietnam and obviously communism movements around in Africa and we all tried to counter with the global superpower competition book shows the US and the United States and the Soviet Union became empires themselves over the course of the Cold War. So they became the new empires as such. And the security fears and needs shaped US and Soviet decisions from the beginning rather than economics. So the book covers 1945 to 1990. It's still an event that impacts Europe today. And my question to the, to the listeners is, did the Cold War end in 1990, the fall of the war, or just, just move into a new phase mm. where Russia has taken over and it's taken them this long to move into that, uh, obviously, the Ukraine today and its expansion, yeah. Syria, part I of that. I think Africa. a new phase is probably the way people have fallen in that direction these days, I think. I think so. I think it has gone to that new phase. It just, uh, take, I, it just took a long time for it to bubble to the surface. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think um, my brother is married to a um, a Taiwanese Californian academic uh, who obviously you know watches Taiwanese news all the time, uh, and so that Russian Chinese viewpoint of the world, uh, she sees in in news reports that we don't get to see. And you're right. I think we're now seeing because what is happening in Ukraine is is only really part of a larger, you know, the larger issue of of domination and re rebalancing the world order. From I think what was in was in the press only yesterday, where with Russia now taking over the, the seats at the Security Council, and they're saying that it's pushing to rebalance. Uh, the unipolar world order and it wants to reset that yeah. you know and that that was an announcement made only yesterday and the comment like that is is no and it's also interesting to see that Modi was flexing these muscles with yeah, Putin I think, last I think, year yeah. and kept Putin waiting uh, and told you know 
made his views of what was happening in Ukraine mm. perfectly clear. So that just shows you the confidence that India now has on the world stage as well. And, you know, somebody like Putin has to listen to what they say. Yeah, very much. And again, as as a large industrial nation, you know, if we, again, I was tracking that last year, if we, the West, were, were cutting off, off supply lines for Russia to sell its supplies, the, the oil and gas still gets sold around the world. It just gets sold to a different customer. And and in many ways, um, you know, the Indian the Indian government are um, and its industry are very business savvy. And so, you know, in, in some respects, they were able to dictate to uh, to Russia because if Russia wanted to sell its stock, then India would buy um, because it's not it's not constrained by by a lot of the things that the West hold ourselves to um, in terms of what, you know, we're going on in Europe with, with the gas. So uh, you're right. That's it for another episode. So thanks to John for coming to the podcast and to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming and our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes as always. You can find us all the usual suspects including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and Twitter. And if you've downloaded us from iTunes and like the pod, it'd be great if you give us a review there or anywhere you get your podcast from. And finally, thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing support and sponsorship to the series and offering technical help for his company ISA. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Mm-hmm.